Someone who's been hunting you down to kill you, you know, before we had our, our attempt to kill count, I think we're about up to 10, right? About up to 10 now. Um, 10 different times, at least, that we have recorded, he's tried to kill you. A lot of them with a lot of witnesses, right? He, he wants you dead and you know that. And so after Saul leaves, I think most people would just stay hidden for a little bit. Let him clear out. Let him go. But what does David do? He, he follows him out and he says, uh, he, my lord, the king. And then this is what's very significant. He says, my lord, the king. And when Saul looks behind him at David, what does David do? He bows to him. Okay, you're in the Middle Ages. You have a knight before a king. They bow. What is that showing? Respect? Loyalty? Acknowledging his authority? You are submitting yourself before the king, right? Because if you are a knight in the Middle Ages and you're wearing all this armor and you are on the ground before the king, what can you do if the king wants you dead? I mean, you could fall to the ground even more, maybe roll over a little bit. I mean, you're talking about 60, 80 pounds worth of metal holding you on the ground, right? You're usually on both of your knees, if not all the way down, right? David's face is to the ground, it says. So what's David going to do if Saul, who has already thrown his spear at him three times now or so, what's David going to be able to do if Saul decides to do that? I mean, not much, right? But this is, that's not what Saul does, right? Saul doesn't throw a spear at him. Saul seems to be kind of caught off guard by this. David then gives this, this kind of speech, just, you know, asking him why. Relaying to him all of his actions. Giving him more evidence as to why he shouldn't believe these as he, you know, seems to suggest these lies about him, you know, maybe he's in uh, verse, uh, you know, verse 9. Why do you listen to the words of men saying, behold, David seeks to harm you? Uh, apparently, David doesn't understand that that actually started with Saul, right? Saul's the one who's originating that. But David's saying, why, why are you listening to these words, right? Uh, behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to me, kill you. Uh, some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. Know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. And I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? The Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. I mean, David makes a pretty compelling argument. Right? Uh, Jonathan made a very compelling argument. Right? Jonathan, his son, made a compelling argument. Say, 
Father, look at all these deeds. Look at all these things that he has done following your commands to destroy the Philistines, to you know, save us from this persecution that we're under, under the Philistines. He's, he's following out your will. You send him out to battle. He gets the victory. He comes back. Why do you think he's against you? It just doesn't make any sense. David presents a similar argument. Why do you think I'm against you? This was my chance. Defenses were down. Here's an, uh, the edge of your robe to show you that I was there. And it could have happened. Right? David, though, doesn't allow the judgment to come from Saul. He again points that the judgment of his actions and his deeds are going to come from the Lord. Right? David understands this. It doesn't matter what other men say. It doesn't matter what lies are out there. It doesn't matter... You know, whether someone, you know, says this is the reason or the motives behind what you're doing or this is not the reason or motives behind what you're doing. Ultimately, that doesn't matter. The Lord knows the truth and he'll be the one to judge. But he gives this argument here and it seems to have an impact on Saul. You know, we've talked before about Saul being uh, plagued by this evil spirit. We've talked before about his actions and how you know, he, he knows that he's done wrong in, in many of these instances, and yet he, he just is consumed by this, this guilt, by this fear, by this suspicion, you know, by this, this desire to keep what he has and not let anything take it away from him, right? He, he wants to hold on to all that he's been given up to this point. But I think after a, a while... Right, your your guilt, as David talks about later in the Psalms, it it builds on you, it weighs on you, it it causes you to have all these, you know, all this weight, all this heaviness. And I think there are certain times where individuals in the world, and you know, ones that aren't even spiritually minded, feel this same way. Right, uh, we're we're hold on to our guilt, we hold on to the weight of our sins. And sometimes we as Christians don't even, you know, we do that ourselves, even though we know we can be forgiven, sometimes even though, you know, we've, we've repented, we've changed, but we still sometimes hold on to that weight because it's, you know, it's, it was so bad what we did, right? You know, we have to let that go. But I told Bill, Bill, my, in the first class that I did, Bill said he was going to make a tie between Saul and Biden and try and get me to speak on it. I told Bill tonight I'm going to make a connection that might be a little strange. I'm going to connect Saul to a well-known character in a musical. Okay, you ready? Here it comes. Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Phantom of the Opera. At the end of that movie, what's the point? The phantom is confronted by the lead female character, right? And he says, everyone treats me like a monster. I'm a monster. Look at my face. I'm a monster. And, you know, she rips off the mask and she sees his face and she says, that's not what makes you the monster. What makes you a monster is your actions. It's what you've done. That's what's made you the monster. We could have tolerated the face. You know, yeah, we put the mask on it. We're fine. It's fine. We can look at you now. No, but it's your actions that have made you the monster, right? And so here's my question. What does a monster do when it's confronted with its monstrosity and it acknowledges that and realizes it? Well, in the case of Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Phantom of the Opera, he burns the whole thing down, right? 
He tries to run and, and destroy all of that. I think Saul here realizes what he's done to some extent to David. He says, is this your voice, my son David? Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me and that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if I find, a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. You know, I think, I think Saul realizes here, yeah, it's, I've not done right, right? All this stuff I've talked about with da- about David and how he's against me, how he wants me dead, how he wants to kill me, how he wants to assassinate me. It's not true. I made it up. And even though I did that, and even though I pursued him and I've hunted him this entire time, he gets the chance to kill me and he doesn't take it. Because the Lord was right. Right? Samuel was right. This kingdom of mine will be taken away from me and given to one who's better than me. We have other depictions of individuals in the, in the Bible in, who have this kind of sorrow, right? There's a sorrow that comes with, you know, realizing your guilt, realizing the wrongness of your actions, but that sorrow can produce a lot of different varying actions and responses, right? In, in this case, Saul, you know, admits his guilt before David and acknowledges that, you know, the, the Lord will bless David and David will have the kingdom. But Saul doesn't really apologize that much or take too much responsibility for his actions or work to try and undo all of these rumors that he's made. I mean, we're going to, I mean, spoiler alert, by the end, he's going to be trying to kill him again. But, you know, what about some other characters that we see? Well, what about, uh, you know, you have Judas in Matthew 27, verse 3. He realized his guilt. He realized the consequences of his actions. He tried, tried to uh, return the money, right? But he was overcome with that guilt, and he just, he, he gave up, right? He ended it all. Uh, you know, Peter, similarly, Peter was in, in Matthew 26, after he denies Jesus three times in verse 75, he realizes what he's done, and he weeps, right? But what does Peter do after acknowledging that, after having that sorrow, he turns and he goes on, and he, he continues the work, right? He He's made stronger from that. And he fulfills the role that he he needs to fulfill in the kingdom. I mean, go back to people we've already talked about even. In Judges, we talk about Jephthah. And we talk about his his vow that he should not have made, right? A foolish vow. And when his daughter comes out and he recognizes the error of his ways, he weeps about that. He's tore up by that, but he made a vow, and so he he fulfilled it, right? Carrie. 
Uh, you made me think about Philippians, the third chapter, where because Paul wasn't perfect, even after his conversion. But in verse 12, Paul writes, not that I already have obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. So, and that can be difficult, the forgetting what happened in the past, but Paul was able to do that and look, continue to look forward. Right, and, and Paul, again, was where I was going too, but I was going to 2 Corinthians, right, where he talks about the godly sorrow. That, you know, that guilt that we feel and that sorrow that we have over the things we've done has a purpose. It has a point, right? There's a, a reason why we feel that way, and it's because it needs to be heavy, right? It needs to be heavy. If it was a minor thing for us to commit sin, then why would we ever repent, right? I mean, you know. But no, if it's a heavy weight, that helps uh, you know, motivate us and point us to the right direction. In, ver- in chapter 7, verse 9, Paul says, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Right? There, there was this sorrow that Saul has. So what does he do when he's faced with his own monstrosity, right? When he's faced with his own bad decisions, when he's faced with these, you know, what, what he has done to his servant David all these years. Well, he, he says, yes, I've dealt wickedly with you. You've dealt righteously with me. The Lord's going to give you all of these things. But the character of Saul will not quite let go certain things, right? Uh, specifically, verse 21 So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. Okay, don't kill any any of my people. Because Saul understands, I think, being king now, you know, what the, the weight of being a king and having a potential rival in the kingdom means. And the easiest solution to that from a worldly standpoint, right? The easiest solution is... Wipe out the line. No one's going to come back and try a rebellion. No one's going to come back and try to overthrow the kingdom. You know, you wipe out the line. They're done. They're gone. We move on, right? But Saul asks David not to do this. And verse 22, David swears to Saul, and Saul went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul's not bringing them back home, right? He stops pursuing David now, but he's not bringing him back home. He's not trying to put him back in his place, right? He's not, he's not saying, oh, well, you know what? The Lord was right. The kingdom goes to David. David, I will now give you the kingdom, and, and I'll step down. Nope, he doesn't do that. He goes back to his place. David goes back to the stronghold. And so, you know, again, free will is in, at work, right? We don't have... Uh, you know, we can't always put these nice little 
you know, this is evil, this is good, this is evil, this is good, and this person is evil and this person is good. No, the people can do good things, they can do bad things, because, again, we, we make good and wrong decisions all the time, right? And though Saul admits his wickedness here and admits his fault, he doesn't go all the way that he needs to. And we see that over and over again in kings and in people where we go so far, you know, again, you see it later on in the, kingdom, the kings of Israel where, the, okay, we remove the idols from some places, but we didn't remove them from the high places. We didn't destroy all these other places. We, we got so far, but we didn't go all the way. Right? We have to be careful with that. Any comments? Jonathan. There are a number of occasions where David proves that he's a man after God's own heart, a number of ways he does that. So here, um, when Saul has been delivered into his hand, everybody finds it very plain that this was from God, that there was an opportunity for David uh, to, um, to kill him there. Instead, he says, May the Lord judge between me and you. And may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. We remember, well, what's, what's God's will? What is God's ways? Well, he's just like that because uh, Romans 12, verse 19, I think it is. Um, Never take your own revenge, but re- leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So he shows that there. And it shouldn't surprise us that God um, might... Uh, lay some opportunities in front of us, even some things that are very um, convincing, and says, well, this must be uh, God's will. Um, he, he, he's even said to the Israelites that um, he allowed some of these dreamers and pr- false prophets to come among them. He allowed this to test them, to see what was in their heart, to know whether or not they would obey the command of the Lord or not. So it shouldn't surprise us um, when uh, the Lord um, is, allows the tests to come our way. Right. Bill. Yeah, kind of to build off what, what Jonathan was saying, I, I was thinking about how this illustrates how sin uh, manifests itself in life. It's not just a one and you're done. Like, kind of like you said earlier, there's a series of decisions that get us here, starting in chapter 12, 13, uh, when with Samuel and the sacrifice, and then how he doesn't treat the relationship with David right, and then the the priesthood, how he pre- reacts poorly to the priests' um, uh, conversation we talked about last week. It's it's one of the purposes of what we have, why we have the Old Testament. Show how sin sin slowly gets you to the point where you can make statements like you just mentioned. Yeah, I'm sorry, but save my family. Like he, he may not have said that. You know, long time ago, but slowly these decisions that got him to the point of where he's at—it's a—it's an illustra—it's a good illustration of how sin can manifest itself over small decisions that God puts in front of us um, every day. Yeah. Any other comment? Moving on to chapter twenty-five, the first verse of chapter twenty-five: Samuel dies. And all Israel gathers together to mourn for him. He's buried at his home in Ramah. And David arises and goes down to the wilderness of Paran. Um, So Samuel, you know, this key figure since the beginning of this book, 
has now died. And, you know, again, you know, David went to Samuel as a, a source of encouragement, right, as a source of strength. When he was on the run, he goes to, to Samuel, and, and who could understand him better than Samuel? But now Samuel is gone. And we, we've see, we see this later on where, you know, what happens when those influential characters die? Well, you know, with Joshua and the leaders there, they stopped following after the Lord, right? They had men that were leading them the right way, and they, they just stopped. Uh, with Samuel here, you know, Samuel dies, and, and what's going to happen? The question remains, you know, what's going to happen with all the people he's influenced, right? He's not influencing Saul so much anymore. That, that relationship is severed. But what's going to happen with David? And, you know, to Jonathan's point, we just saw where he knows and understands that he should not take his own revenge. But now we get to this situation with Nabal and Abigail. And who is Nabal? He's rich. Yeah, he's rich. He has a lot of of, uh, livestock, uh, specifically sheep. And he has a lot of of men that work under him. And and so, you know, he he is going down to uh, Carmel to... Uh, to shear his sheep, and David hears this, and so he sends some men down to ask for a gift, right? Because David's men have been basically providing protection to Nabal and his uh, his servants uh, in their flock, his possessions, and David is asking for you know just whatever he has to give in uh, you know as payment for this you know this good deed that David and his men have done for them, right? And what is Nabal's response? Who is David? Who is, uh, you know, apparently everybody just adopts this terminology now with with David. Who is this son of Jesse? Uh, And then he says, there are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. That's kind of a dig at David's loyalties or lack thereof, right? Um, What do we know about Nabal? He's an obstinate fool. His actions show that as well, <laughs> right? And, and what I find interesting is, who knows that Nabal is a fool? Everybody. His wife knows. Not just his wife, though. His servants go to his wife and say, we all know this guy is a fool, and he's made a bad decision here. We have to stop this. We have to do something, right? Nabal insults David's men. They go back to David, and and again, you know, to Jonathan's point, David learned the lesson before, but he's being tested here. What is David's response? We'll burn him to the ground, right? Um, all of his men, they, he tells them to gird on their weapons. They do so. David girds his on as well, and they go off. They're going to destroy everything that Nabal has, right? And so they they head off. But one of the servants runs to Abigail, Nabal's wife, and tells her what occurred. And so Abigail has this plan. And, you know, what is Abigail's plan? Yeah, she brings him the gift, right? Brings him the gift. Intercepts him on the way, right? So, you know... it shows that this is an intentional thing. It's not just, well, let's wait till David gets here and then we'll, 
uh, see what he wants. You know, what little thing can we offer him? No, she has it all planned out. We're getting all of this stuff. We're going right now. And we're going to meet David on the way. And so they, they meet him on the road. And I think it's interesting. She does not try to defend the actions of her foolish husband, right? She, yeah, there's no defense for that. Um, he is a fool and he has done a foolish thing. But she does plead to David to allow the Lord to exact revenge and not do it or take it upon himself, right? Essentially, she's saying, why would you destroy all these innocent people for this foolish man's action, right? That's what she's saying. Don't do this, but you're better than this. We know you're better than this. The Lord is going to bless you. We've heard about all your actions. We know your character. Do not do this thing. And, you know, David is, is swayed by this, right? Uh, in verse 32, he even says to Abigail, uh, verse 32 and 33, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Again, we have another you know, acknowledgement by David that he was intending to do wrong here. And yet someone came and, and showed him the error of his ways and, and prevented him from doing that, right? In contrast to, you know, kind of our subject for this study, Saul, who has had, I mean, how many people come to him to say, why are we doing this to David? What are you talking about with David? His son, the priest, his servants, you know, kill the priest. And the servants say, uh, wait a second, uh, no, not going to do that. Uh, you know, David even himself shows him. And so, you know, Saul's just not going to listen to these things. David has someone approach him and says, hey, you, you do not need to do this. Don't take your own revenge. You should not take your revenge. Let the Lord put this on his own head. And David says, you're right. You kept me from doing evil today. And I don't think we need to minimize that because it takes a lot sometimes for us to admit, yeah, I was intent on doing wrong here. Thank you for helping me not. Thank you for encouraging me to do the right thing as opposed to the wrong thing. You know, he says, blessed be you because the Lord sent you to me to keep me from doing evil today. And, you know, that's why we need to surround ourselves with these good examples, right? With people that are looking out for us. That's why you need to be a part of a local congregation. That's why you need to have brethren around you and with you and involved in your life so that you can know if I start heading down the wrong road, who's going to stop me, right? Because sometimes we head down the wrong road. Sometimes we do it intentionally. Sometimes we do it unintentionally. But isn't it great that we can have people that are watching out for us as we try to watch out for them and can pull us back onto the right path, right? That's what James is talking about, right? Saving a brother from sin. You grab him and you pull him out of the fire. Right? And you can pull him back onto the right road. David recognizes this characteristic in Abigail, but unfortunately she's married to a man who's too foolish to 
take advantage of it, right? Or appreciate it. And so Abigail prevents this slaughter from occurring. David takes all of the gift that she brought and leaves, right? He leaves. Abigail goes back home and and berates her husband and really just gives it. No. No, she comes home and what does she find? He's having a party. He's drunk. He's having a good old time. And... She doesn't tell him anything. Doesn't tell him anything. It, it, to me, when I read this, what I picture in my head is she comes back after, the, you know, almost, you know, it, confronting an army that's coming to destroy them. She comes back, and he's having a party. Great. And then in my head, what I see is she just goes to another place, <laughs> just leaves, and he has his good old time. And then in the next morning, Abigail comes to Nabal, the wine's gone out of him, and tells him what happened. And his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. And then ten days later, he's dead. You don't know what's in your future, right? Nabal was having a party. He's told this news. He's not having any more parties anymore. Ten days later, he's dead. Um, We have to be careful with our foolishness. The world likes to say, well, sometimes individuals just need to go out and sow their wild oats. Right? Go out and sow your wild oats. They have to be, they have to really get low before they understand what's going to happen to them. Right? They have to, they have to live a little bit so they can understand the consequences of their actions. Why? Right? Why? We have all the wisdom we ever need in the scriptures, right? We have all of the people that have experienced all these things, or a lot of them anyway, among our own midst, right? Why do we need to go and experience ourselves so we truly understand? What you're saying is, yes, I want to see this person hurt themselves over and over and over and over again and possibly destroy their soul. For what reason? Why? My thinking is because it's hard to confront people when they're doing wrong. Sometimes we we use that motivation, we use that justification because it's hard to go to someone you love and say, you are doing wrong. Here is this wrong that you are doing, right? It's hard to go to that person and say, you need to change. It's hard to say, if you do not change... I have to kick you out of my house. I have to withdraw from you. I have to do this, do that. I have to, you know, there has to be consequences here. And you have to stick to them for it to be of any effect, right? But what's the point? The point is we're trying to save them from experiencing all these pain and heartache and sorrow and possibly losing their souls, right? Brian. Verse uh, verse twenty eight, she says, "Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant." Just the uh, the humility there to take ownership uh, of something that was truly not her fault. I think it would have been really easy to kind of have the uh, "not my job" mentality and say, "Hey, listen, Nabal's got what's coming to him. He made a poor choice. A lot of people are going to be hurt, but it's not my job. I'm going to stay out of this." And she she did the exact opposite. She ran towards the trouble and she took ownership and inserted herself in there. So that she could save the lives of people that she cared about, and I think that's that's pretty uh, pretty commendable. 
Yeah, and she had the proper motivations too. I don't think she was just trying to save the lives of all those innocent people, but also, I mean, she mentions, you know, don't do this to yourself, David. Don't do this to yourself. So I think, I think she understood the consequences of what this action would mean to David as well, um, which, yeah, that's, that's very commendable. Any other comments on uh, Abigail and Nabal? Yes. Certainly she was a joy to, to anyone, and certainly to David, I believe. Her, her servants and workers trusted in her. David learned to trust in her. And, and uh, what a wonderful, delightful woman mentioned just briefly in the Scripture who had an impact on such a great man. Yeah, it's true. Uh, you know, after the death of Nabal, David hears of that and he sends to marry Abigail. Um, and and he be- uh, she becomes his wife in, uh, later on in the latter part of chapter 25, uh, verse 39 and following. Um, you know, she goes and she becomes his wife. And, and it mentions here that David now has, has two wives. Technically, he had three wives, but he has two wives at this time. One is Abigail, the other one is Ahinoam of Jezreel. And it also tells us, verse 44, what happened to his wife Michael, right? The daughter of Saul. When he fled from his home because Saul wanted him dead, what did Saul do with Michael? Gave her to somebody else. He gave her to uh, Palti, the son of Laish. And so maybe that, you know, we'll, we'll see Michael later on. She seems to have a, a different... Uh, personality, a harsher personality at that point. And, you know, part of that may be, you know, involved here in the circumstances that she finds herself in. That brings us to chapter 26. Chapter 26, we are again brought these individuals called the Ziphites. And what we know about the Ziphites is if you're David, don't trust the Ziphites. They will rat you out to Saul any chance they get, right? Um, And so... The Zivites go to Saul and they say, is David not hiding in this hill? Uh, Hakala, which is before Jeshimon. And so David arises. He goes down to the wilderness of Ziph. He has again with him 3,000. How many men do you need to catch David? You, apparently you need 3,000. Uh, that's what Saul seems to think. So he brings it every time. Um, Saul is, is going, he's going to come after David in the wilderness. And at this point in time, you realize that they've been at this for so long that now they seem to have this routine. And David's gotten smarter about it, right? So Saul goes out with his 3,000 men, which, you know, okay, yeah, it's, he's David hunting season. So he doesn't go out with 3,000 men. And David now has spies. We didn't have spies before, but now David has spies, okay? We know Saul's probably going to come whenever it's David hunting season again. And so we get spies in the land. And we know now that Saul is coming. And not only do we know he's coming, we know where he's going to be, where he's going to camp. So David sees this, the place where Saul lay, and he says to Ahimelech and to Abishai, who wants to go with me? And so Abishai goes with him, and they go down to the camp. And when they come to the camp, they come to it at night, and Saul's sleeping, as you would at night, uh, inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, Abner and people were lying around him. And what does Abishai say? Here we go. Round two. Right? 
Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him a second time. It's only going to take me one hit. One shot, and he's done. David was, he felt when he cut the edge of Saul's robe. He felt that, right? That was, he did not like that. And he, he decided at that point, I am not going to harm the Lord's anointed. He was not even going to touch his robe again. So David says, no, we're not going to kill him. What are we going to do instead? Take his spear and his water jug. We'll take it. They take it. He goes to a far off place. And then he calls out to the army and he says, your security is terrible. Right? How dare you defend the king this way? All of you deserve death because your king could have been killed tonight and all of you were just sleeping, right? Um, And Saul again, you know, says the same, you know, the same thing, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I've sinned, return my son David. This time he asked him to return. I will not harm you again because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. David says, Here's my proof. Here's your spear. Here's the jug of water. I didn't take your life, right? The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord. May he deliver me from all distress. David is concerned about how he is viewed in the eyes of the Lord. Saul is concerned about his life. He's concerned about his life. He's concerned about the physical things. David is concerned about the spiritual things. And apparently he doesn't trust Saul because he still just goes his own way and doesn't return with Saul. And so that's where we leave it off uh, this evening. Next week, uh, Brother Leland will be filling in for me. So save all your questions about spiritists and mediums for Brother Leland. I'm sure he'll be happy to answer those fully at that time. Thank you.